we're go along review. I'm going to just work through it. Obviously, we're in the Pentateuch. We're going to be in Exodus starting in January, working through that book. But um, I might have hit the button too many times. There we go. Uh, obviously, we have the Genesis 1 through 11. We know that that deals with the history of mankind. And next week, we will review it more in, more in depth. We're going to finish Genesis next week and then kind of run back through the book. I just wanted you to kind of see the movement, history of mankind and then or humankind. And then it centers in, as we talked about, from 12 to 50, it zeroes in on Abraham and family. And now we're at Joseph. And so we're going to be diving in. I call it Joseph's journey, 37 to 45. Um, and that's quite a few chapters to cover uh, in one fell swoop. So you can imagine I might talk fast. I might not. Who knows? Uh, but this is Joseph's journey. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to carry you from the setup of Joseph's life all the way through his final, kind of not really final interaction with his brothers, but when the, when the brothers are reunited in the circumstance in Egypt. And we're going to work through this. I want to encourage you, and I'll mention it again, go back over some of the details about his life. Obviously, you could spend a lot of time on Joseph's life. A lot of people have done that in the past, and, and it's a great study. Uh, I want to finish Genesis and move through. And again, know your Bible, understanding the framework of the story. Now, I put down this, everyone's life is different. Uh, but often our lives follow a trajectory that makes sense, even though it may be tough. I, I mention that because maybe you join the military and you say, hey, it, it, we don't exactly know what you're going to do, but we can follow the plan out. Uh, if you're in my family, the majority of my extended family lands in the greenhouse business. And so, yes, it may take a different spin or turn. But when I walk into a meeting for our industry and I see a million cousins, a million's a little exaggeration, but there's 120, 130 first cousins on my mom's side, majority in the greenhouse business. So anytime I'm in an industry meeting, it's a family gathering. And so the trajectory of our life is pretty much set. What are they going to do? They're going to end up in the greenhouse industry, okay? That's what they all end up doing. And, and they, you can kind of see it. It kind of follows a pattern. I think Logan is definitely going to be an electrician, and that's when uh, Mr. Hines is going to hang up the spurs is when he's ready to take over the truck and, and be that the trajectory. Uh, Eric has lost his son to his father-in-law, I mean, he just deserts anything Eric has. That's a tough break, you know, but it happens to the best of us. I went to Virginia Tech, which is right here, three hours away. Not a single one of my children owns any apparel that's Virginia Tech, but we do own purple and gold. Tonight, case in point, my eldest son is wearing LSU garb. My own brother, who didn't go to college, so I don't always give me grief about it. Why aren't your kids Virginia Tech fans? I lost to my father-in-law as well. So we can wallow in our defeat, Eric, uh, together. Let's just get lunch and defeat. That's the best thing we can do. But either way, you can see the trajectory, right? Some people's lives, and I'm not saying it doesn't have turns and twists, but oftentimes our lives follow a pattern. But there's some people, when you look at their life, you're like, wow, they just are like doubling back. They're doing everything you just never expect. Their life changes drastically. Joseph's life is one of those drastic changings movements, and it does so repetitively. I'm going to walk us through just a little bit of it. He starts out when you first meet him. When you really first meet him, he's born uh, the son that Rachel wanted and prayed for. And there's this like aha moment. He's already kind of the favorite before he's even born. Then you you meet him in 37 and he's obviously his dad's favorite. Uh, You're going to watch um, him go, though, from the favorite son. and, And mind you, that whole coat of many colors 
was like carrying around the will and testament that says, I'm getting everything, all right? So just to understand the implications of his coat, it wasn't just dad bought me a leather coat and got you all canvas. It is a, I have the rights to all the property, brothers of mine, every one of which except Benjamin was older than him. And so he's walking around, favorite son, publicly acknowledged as a chosen heir of his father, Jacob, and then he's sold as a slave by his own family. That's a drastic move, right? You come walking into your brothers with news from your father who's picked you as the best and brightest of all of them and going to give you everything. And you end up being sold as a slave. He rises to prominence in the home of his master, who, by the way, is a prominent person in Egyptian society connected to Pharaoh, only to be betrayed and lied about by his master's wife. And he ends up in the dungeon where, by the way, you're unkept and unshaven you are not, we think prison like we see our prison system. I'm not saying I want to live in our prison system. I don't. But it was luxury compared to how they would have prison in the ancient world. Because when you see J- uh, Joseph come out of the dungeon and go see Pharaoh, what's the first thing he has to do? Quickly clean up. Shave his face. The Egyptians didn't wear beards. He had to get all ready. Uh, he goes from the dungeon, of course. But out of the darkness, he sees hope, right? He has a butler and a baker that come to prison. He interprets their dreams. The one he says, please don't forget me. He doesn't bother telling the baker that because he's going to get hung, so it doesn't matter. But the butler, please don't, don't forget me. What happens? Forgotten. Can you imagine a ray of hope? I interpreted the dream. God used me. Surely he'll tell somebody more powerful than my previous master that I've done nothing wrong. There's giftedness here. He's forgotten. But out of that dungeon, at some point, Pharaoh has a dream, and then he is pulled out of the dungeon. He is used by God to interpret the dreams, and then he makes a suggestion to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh decides that, well, that's a good idea, but why don't you run that idea? And he results from dungeon. He's now the second most powerful person in the world, or at least the world that the Bible's talking about right here. Definitely Canaan all tied in, second most powerful. And let's be honest, he's the one that is executing the power. The Pharaoh is removed from it. Joseph is his acting power source. And then in the end, in that position, the brothers who sold him into slavery end up kneeling before him. And so you watch his life move through some drastic changes. Nothing about his life seems to be a small movement. There's no, there's no little move. I mean, you think about this from favored to slave from slave to running a prominent household to going to a dungeon to running the dungeon to getting gypped, so to speak, by the butler who doesn't remember you to having your hopes crash down to being brought out to interpret a dream, to give advice, to be the executor of that advice, rising to the most powerful or second most powerful person in the world. Everything moves in a major way. But I want you to keep one verse in mind, Genesis 45, 5. This is Joseph's perspective, and I'm sure there was moments of sheer desperation. I can't imagine how that feels to be sold into slavery by your own family. Uh, there's no one coming to help you. You know that. Um, but Genesis 5.5 is his perspective. Now, therefore, he says to his brothers, Be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. And this is not him sugarcoating what his brothers did. He hears the brothers sweating bullets because they're talking, and he says, recognize that God was working. And at the end, when we come to this point, he's about 40 years old at this time, a little bit older maybe, or getting close to 40. 
Here is a guy that says, you did this, but God sent me here, and he knew God's purpose to preserve life. Now we're going to jump into this journey, and we're going to move quick through it. I'd encourage you to read 37 through 45 or all the way to the end. I'll encourage you after we're done Genesis and we recap to go back over and, and if you get a chance during the Christmas break, maybe get a chance to read over Genesis. I know I'm asking a lot because there's a lot of chapters there. And then possibly dive into Exodus as we work through. Sometimes it's, it's, well, sometimes it's always good to get that I call float up picture. So after you've gone through the whole book, if you take a gobble time, if you're able to do it, read it in one sitting. It'll take you a little while, but you can do it. It's possible. You can read a book. You can read this in, in probably a couple hours, and, and you'll get a view of Genesis that will blow your mind as you pull it all together. But we're going to um, at least kind of go back over these chapters, but we're going to jump in and do the big picture view of Joseph's life, and we start with chapter 37. And so I'm going to kind of move through this quickly, I call this the setup. Why? This sets up his whole life. This is where you meet Joseph again. The last time we met Joseph, he was behind the pack. He's the last one in line. uh, Jacob leads. He has all the other kids and wives in front. And Rachel and and Joseph are last. Then you read about him when he lists all the sons when Benjamin is born. And now we come to the setup. I call it part one, verses one through 11. And Joseph goes to his dad with a report of bad behavior. The children born to the servants, which I think is a total of four kids, have been misbehaving in some way, shape, or form. And Joseph reports back to his dad. Now, what's the first thing you think when you hear that? Tattletale, right? But why is he the chosen heir? Those guys are running the family business. And Joseph saw him doing something that's not good for the business. And he goes and lets the boss know that they're doing something that's not good for business. There's a reason why he's chosen. I'm not condoning Jacob's coat of many colors. That was actually not a wise choice on his part. And he definitely showed favoritism and it hurt him. Um, However, he's reporting on bad behavior. He's not being a tattletale. He's actually doing what he should do to preserve the family business and economy. And so he comes back and says, look, they're just not doing it right. This is not how we do things. Um, That doesn't endear him to those brothers. By the way, they're the sons of the servants. You're talking about the most distant from Joseph, right? If you talk about the favoritism scale, they were the first in line to be slaughtered by Esau. Definitely not the closest in line. So you're going to see that distance. We obviously encounter in these first 11 uh, verses, you encounter the coat and you got an indication of favoritism. Really, you have a, a, a screaming announcement of favoritism that I love Joseph more than I love you. Um, these guys are older than Joseph, but it's not like it's 30 years older, okay? So there's, there's a range, there's a tension that's taking place. He's 17, what are they, maybe 30, 31, 32 at the oldest, work their way back. These are guys with a future in front of them that see the 17-year-old as the future, I get everything, oldest son of Rachel, doesn't matter that you're the oldest son. So you can recognize that the tension's building. This is not the wise move by Jacob. And then in verse 5, you get a start of a couple dreams. I'm going to read the first one. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brothers, and they hated him yet the more. Not the smartest move on his part. Hey, I had a dream that you guys worshiped me. You bowed down to me. I lead you. We get it. You got the coat. Dad likes you best. Thanks for the dream. Joseph has another dream. 
that even Jacob reprimands Joseph about. Because Jacob's fine with everyone else bowing down to Joseph, but not with Jacob bowing down to Joseph. And Joseph has a dream that Jacob kneels before Joseph. In that society, you don't kneel, you don't kneel down to your son. That's that. We, we miss it, right? We're in the Western world. We could see someone rise to power, and, and the lineage is different. Not in this society. You would never kneel for your son. Your son would never ask you to kneel for you. That would be unheard of. Even in Jesus' time, remember I talked about it many moons ago, um, the, the idea of the Pharisees, right, and the talk about a, a father would call his own son master, right? That's the Pharisees wanted because it was just such an unusual thing for a dad to do to come in and say, well, I'm going to sit down at rabbi's feet and it'd be his son. They just didn't do that. And so the dream where Jacob kneels to Joseph is a pretty culturally shocking dream that Jacob reprimands him over. Now, he keeps it to heart, but what's fascinating is it all takes place. The dream was real. I'm not saying he was wise in sharing it, but obviously God is working through this time. This all sets up, I call part two of 37, 12 through 36. What you get is an assignment. All the other brothers are caring for sheep somewhere else, livestock. And Joseph is sent to check up on them. What are some of the reasons why this is a bad situation? Spit it out. You can talk. It's okay. The camera's not even on you. The youngest is checking up on the olders. He's going by himself. To an already tense situation. What else? He's already done this once. He's not usually the good reporter. What else about this? Think about it from the standpoint of work. Why wasn't he working? There you go. Why isn't he tending sheep? He's hanging out with dad, eating the good stuff, and the guys are out there working, and they say, oh, Joseph, Jacob says to Joseph, go check on them, see what they're doing. It's not going to be good. Trust me, the boys are off in the town. You know, they, they've wandered off from where they're supposed to be, and they're in Dotham, right? And they're ready to, you know, I'm not saying they're partying, but it doesn't sound like they're doing what they're supposed to, Right? And so he's going to check on. The situation's not great. I put here, um, the brothers are working. The younger, the favorite brother, is checking up on them. The one who told on the four of them. And then comes the agenda. What's the agenda? They first say they're going to what? Kill him. We're done with this guy. It's a loving family. I think it was Tom Cassette we were talking. He said he heard someone say, you would never want to be neighbors to Jacob and his family. That's just a, it's a bad rap there. Uh, there's a reason why they need plenty of space. But then they decide they're going to sell him. This is Judah's idea. He says, hey, let's not have his blood on our hands. Let's not be the, the murderers of our brother. Let's just sell him and get rid of him, which they do. It takes place about 1728 B.C. That's where we're landing on time, roughly. There's some disagreement on that. There's people that think it's much later and jump forward about 400 years. I would land on the more traditional time frame of the Exodus, which means it's going to be right around here, 1728 B.C. And here's what I want you to realize. He's chucked into a dry well, and there's absolute agony in him. Because when we read later of the brothers, they're going to say this. We didn't listen. They talk about this 30 years later or 20 years later. We didn't listen to him when he cried to us for help. So I want you to realize it wasn't just like, come on, guys, let me out. I mean, Joseph was petrified. Uh, Joseph recognized what was taking place. 
Uh, he was chucked in a, in a cistern that's dry with no hope of ever getting out and hearing them discuss how they're going to kill him. Or, and I'm sure someone's like, let's just leave him there. Then we didn't really kill him. You know, and someone says, I'd like to cut him up. But there, this, this, is a, this is an ugly situation. And in your mind, I want you to realize something. There is torture. There's, there's pain that's in his heart. Well, what they do is they sell him off. Now, Reuben, you notice, comes back and he's grieved because he wanted to go rescue Joseph. Why do you think he wants to rescue Joseph? He's a responsible one. I give him even less credit than that. He's the one that's supposed to be responsible, that has ruined his birthright. He has to know that his dad knew what he did with Bilhah. And he's thinking, if I rescue the favorite, that makes me second favorite at least, right? I'm not Joseph, but I saved Joseph, right? And so it's going to elevate his status. And so there's both. He's supposed to be the oldest and be responsible. So this would fall on him and or it brings his status back up with Jacob. He doesn't have this opportunity. I put here, what a great group of offspring. This is Israel, everyone. This is, this is the lineage. This is what we're staring at. Um, I put in some key components. One thing I want you to notice, these brothers have not grown spiritually at all. They're as wicked as when they sacked Shechem. Their location has not changed their heart at all. They callously ignore their own brother, selling him into slavery, even though he pleaded with them, which we'll see in Genesis, by the way, it's 42:21, gives you a glimpse of how much pain he was in by how they describe the situation and the brother's guilt. And remember, and I want you to realize this, Isaac is still alive. When they come back, and what do they do to Jacob? They get his coat, Joseph's coat, they tear it, right? They kill a goat. They spill blood all over it, and they walk up to Jacob, and they do this. Is this Joseph's coat? We haven't seen him, but we found his coat. Is this the coat you made him? <clears throat> and so the agony for Jacob is he's deceived by his own sons into not only realizing that Joseph is dead, but who would Jacob blame? Himself, right? Because they've not seen Joseph. They just found a bloody coat. And what is Jacob going to say? I shouldn't have sent him by himself. It was too dangerous. That was so foolish. I risked his son's life for a bunch of sheep. What a dumb move was that? Do you recognize not only did they portray Joseph as dead, but they have a father blaming himself now for 20 years for the death of his favorite son, and Isaac is going to see, well, he's not going to see squat, but he's going to be there because he's blind. He's going to be walking through this with Jacob. He doesn't die for a couple more years. He sees this agony. Um, I put here as a kind of connecting point, because when you look at the brothers, you say, how hard are they? How hard hearted are they? How callous do you have to be to sell your brother into slavery Pretend he died by wild animals and make your dad feel like garbage. Now, we live in such a rampantly wicked society that, you know, people hate their parents and there's a lot more turmoil that we see. There may have been tension in the family, but the dynamic of the patriarch remained the patriarch. They're, they're not, this is not the norm for this society. This is not what you do to your parents. Uh, very specifically, not what you would do to your dad. So now the question I ask is, I wonder how callous we become to conviction and the avenue in which it is brought to us. Because think about what they did to Joseph. 
What did Joseph do with his bad report? He said they're doing wrong. When he shows up, he's the guy that dreamed the dreams and has the thoughts, and he's convicting on them. Because he's saying God is speaking to me, and they're saying, who's God? They're not listening to God. They don't care about God. They don't care about anyone but themselves. And so this callousness that comes in, and so the question we can kind of apply is, uh, everyone wants to see themselves as Joseph, when maybe we should see ourselves as the brothers and wonder how callous are we to conviction and to the avenue of conviction. And that can be a family member in your life. It could be your church. It could be friends. It could be coworkers how we push back and see how ugly we can get. Now, Joseph, as we're moving through the story, is catapulted now from chosen one to enslaved one. Before we, though, hear more of his story, we get an aside. The aside, I guess I say it, it's a side story right here. Pull it out, chapter 38. You're Joseph, and then you're going to go, Joseph, 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 till the end. But right here we get a vision of Judah and why is Judah important? He's the line. We're going to see in chapter 50 that he's the heir. He's the one through which Christ is going to come. And Jacob's going to make that clear. Judah. And so suddenly we get a picture of Judah. If anyone was writing this story besides God, they would never include this story about Judah. Oh, by the way, Christ came from the line of Judah. He's a real peach, you know. And we're going to see that right now when you look at that. This is... Judah and Tamar, or however you uh, pronounce that, and that's Judah's daughter-in-law. And I'm going to give you a little bit of the story. So timing seems to be around this same time period. I feel like it, it may have already started just because it's hard for him to have sons who then have a wife. And so there seems to be a lot of uh, babies being born, growing up and having wives. So, but, but based on the way the wording is, it's similar timing. So one commentator says maybe after the whole Joseph thing, they split apart. However it may unfold, this is a side story of Judah's life. And then we're going to go right back into Joseph. So we're going to go back. We're going to go, we're, we're pulling out like we did with Esau. Remember, we see the end of Esau's life and then we're going to go back to Joseph. But here's what takes place. Judah leaves his brothers. He makes a friend named Hira. He then takes a Canaanite woman as his wife. By the way, her name's never told. She's always linked to her dad. Daughter of Sua, I think, one of those. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but um, you can always correct me. It's fine. Uh, he, he, she, he takes a wife, and then he raises three sons. Right? We're getting, this is quick. Here's Judah, a Canaanite wife. Is that something that God likes, by the way? How many? <laughs> Abraham sends a servant to find a wife that's not Canaanite, and then Isaac sends off Jacob to find a wife that's not Canaanite, and then Judah says, yeah, whatever. I'm going to go ahead and find a Canaanite woman. He raises three sons, two of which are killed by God for being wicked. What does that tell you about Judah? He definitely didn't raise his kids, right? And I'm not saying you blame the parents for the kids, but they were wicked right at marriage. They're just wicked. And then he promises his son, his third son, that he would marry Tamar, which, by the way, this does establish um, Mosaic law, or, or we see that in the Exodus, actually more in Deuteronomy, where a brother would take, his, um, take the wife of his brother lost to raise up offspring. So we realize where that started. It's all the way back with Judah. It's before they're ever a big nation. Um, you can see that there. Um, and through this, 
Tamar realizes that Judah's not giving, not going to have her marry the third son. She's living with her dad again. He sends her off, says, I'm going to, when Shayla's ready, we're, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and have you two marry. Don't worry, just wait. Well, it's past that time, and then he loses his wife. Judah loses his wife. So now we have Judah, who's a widower, and then he decides to go shear sheep with his buddy Hira. They go off. Tamar gets rid of her mourning clothes, and she goes and plays the harlot on the side of the street. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Judah sees this woman and decides that he wants to take a prostitute, and he does. I want you to compare that to Joseph, who resists the temptation of his master's wife. Who does Judah, what does Judah do? He seeks it. He's looking for temptation. So you're going to see the morals of this man coming through. Well, the end result is she gets pregnant. Judah finds out she's pregnant through harlotry, is basically how the wording reads in Hebrew. She acted as a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. And Judah, being the good, upstanding, godly man that he is, let's drag her out and let's kill her. Right? That's his idea. That's what you do to them. And then she says, great, the guy that made me pregnant is the guy that owns this signet ring. His known ring is staff and something else. And Judah says something there. He says this, and Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. In other words, Judah recognized, and this tells you he wasn't going to give his son to her, and he says, she's been more righteous than I am. Well, not the best comparison because he's not a righteous guy, but at least he sees something. That's verse 26 of chapter 38. I want you to recognize something in chapter 38. One, we see Judah, which by the way is going to explain the three lines of Judah. He's going to have two sons by Tamar and he's going to have his other son. There's three family lines from Judah as we leave when we have the Exodus and they're doing all the counting and the recounting and all the stuff that happens in those first five books. But what you're also seeing is bad morals on display and a look at what Israel would become if they remained in Canaan. They're in Canaan. And the one story we get is Judah, the line of Christ. We know that, right? We're looking back. And he marries a Canaanite woman, has children by his daughter-in-law, self-righteous, right? Wicked, immoral person. And, and what we're seeing is a reason to move them all to Egypt. Why does God move his people to Egypt? And why are they enslaved? And you see a need to get them out of Canaan again. And God, in his providence, is going to be moving them out. Um, here's an interesting thing. If they didn't get moved to Egypt, they would have been sucked directly into the culture of the day. Chapter 38 is Judah, the heir, acting just as bad as the culture around him. There's zero difference between him and Hira, his buddy. There's no, no distinction at all between them. I put here, how well do we live apart from the morals of the day? How well do we live solely by Christ's standard and not the blended one that is so popular? What is our standard? Judah would say whatever works. Judah would work his way right into our society. This would not be a guy that stood apart. He'd be woven into the fabric of what we see right now. Joseph, who is the contrast, is the guy that does not engage in what would have been normal practice of the day. So here, as we move from Judah, I don't want you to miss Judah's morals in complete opposition to the morals of Joseph. Now with Potiphar's wife, 
which comes up next in chapter 39. I label it the deceit because you build all the way to her big lie. And so here's what happens. Joseph's in his first slave assignment, and he quickly gains favor and responsibility. But after all that faithful service and advancement, Joseph catches the eye of Potiphar's wife, and she wants him to engage in immorality. And he refuses repetitively. Look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 39. He says to her, there is none greater in this house than I, and he's not lying. In other words, he's the most powerful in this house except for the owner of the house, Potiphar. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. In other words, the only distinction between my master and me is that I am not to touch you. You are set aside because thou art his wife. Do you see his reasoning? It's not just fear, it's morals. I don't have you because you're married to him. And that's not what I'm going to do. How then can I do this great wickedness? And this is what's fascinating to get a perspective and sin against who? God, not Potiphar. Do you see how he sees his sin? David's going to do the same thing. Of course, he caves and then he talks about his sin. He says, I've sinned against God. And you see, Joseph has the right perspective right here. I'm not going to do this, not because it's not culturally acceptable. Look, the Egyptians were not moral people. So they engaged in rampant wickedness like any other of those ancient cultures. This wouldn't necessarily have been <coughs> completely out of bounds. Potiphar would not have been okay with it, but this was not out of the norm for her. And so he says, I'm not going to sin against God. Now she persists daily until finally she finds a time alone in the house and grabs Joseph and he leaves his garment behind and flees. Every time you read the story, right, you see her grab her arm and he's like, oh, take it off. Look, it would have been a lot more tangled up than that for a man to leave his garment behind, okay? He was running from the temptation and the sin and the, the possible image, but she wasn't just grabbing his arm. This woman was persistent in an aggressive format, and he has to leave his outer garment behind because of, of her aggressiveness. She, of course, is jilted in the most glaring way, right? You are the master's wife, and a slave is not listening to you. Now, she can't go to her husband and say, he's a disobedient slave because I wanted to be immoral with him, and that's not going to fly, right? So what does she do? She takes the garment now, and she sits beside it, what it says there, waits until Potiphar gets home, and she shows, she tells on him already, see, I was in the house by myself, but he left when I screamed, and then the servants see it, and then the husband sees this garment, and the husband is angry. I'm surprised he doesn't kill Joseph. I always wonder a little bit, does he like, eh, she's a bit of a liar. I'm going to make sure here, right? But he throws him in the king's dungeon. I want you to recognize something. This is not any dungeon. This is the king's dungeon, because Potiphar is connected to Pharaoh, and he puts him in the best dungeon. When we hear king's dungeon, typically for us, we're like, oh, that's a luxury dungeon. No, king's dungeon is probably the worst dungeon that's there. This is where people go who tick off Pharaoh. And that's why we're going to see a butler and a baker. Why do they end up in this prison? It's the king's prison. I want you to see God's hand. He's going to encounter the butler and the baker only in this prison. And look, when you serve Pharaoh and he gets offended by you, he throws you in his prison. That's why he has it there. In Nicaragua, the dictator before the current dictator, who doesn't act, pretends he's not a dictator, but the one that they overthrew in the 80s, 
His prison was underneath his house. It's right there on the top hill and underneath where he kept all the political prisoners. And it wasn't a good place to go. But if you want to arrest someone real quick, invite him to dinner and then put him in prison, right? This is simple. The king had his dungeon and there he goes. What's the key component? Joseph did right and was punished for it severely. Now think about this. He did what was right and was punished severely. And here's the question. I wonder if we would persist in right even when we're punished or falsely accused for doing it. I would do the right thing, but they're just going to punish me for it. Oh, so that's the reason to do the wrong thing. Joseph is this pushback to all of our capitulating to our society. Well, I got to do it because, yeah, it's society nowadays. That's how it works. I'm not saying you're engaging in morality. I wanted you to see how we compromise and how we did not. And I want you to see something else. He was punished severely for it. You ever hear the mantra, but just do the right thing and it'll work out for you. It'll work out in eternity, but it doesn't have a promise that it's going to all work out here on earth. It definitely didn't work out great for Joseph at the moment. Now, remember the drastic moves? So you go from being favored to slave. Then we get the horrible brother. Then we come back to rising to prominence. By the way, he served in Potiphar's household for about nine years. So you're going from a 17-year-old to about a 26 or so year old. Uh, 26, 27, then we just get out of prison, he's about 30. So he served in his household for a while before the wife took an interest in him as he rose in prominence. Now he goes from prominence back to the dungeon. He's at the bottom of the totem pole. Before chapter 39 ends, he's running the prison. But manager of prison still means you're in what? prison (laughs) it's not like you're like hey could you put a hot tub in this cell and i like some curtains and a nice ocean view because i run the prison it's just he had liberties i want you to see something about joseph because and i'm again i'm not extolling the virtues of jacob at all this guy could obviously manage he was a gifted individual young but in every circumstance he's rising to the top Potiphar's household, this was no running the house and making sure the cookies were on the table when Potiphar came home. He was running his own enterprise, which would have been agricultural. It would have been all his lands, all the cultivation. He was learning Egyptian agriculture. How do you think he knows all the information he he rides up to? We know God could give it to him miraculously, but he didn't need it miraculously. He learned it at Potiphar's house. Now he's in prison. Who's he working with now? Who's in prison usually? Prisoners. Prisoners. (laughs) Criminals. Somebody who's broken the law or upset Pharaoh, who is the law. And so you see him rising again to the surface. And and I want you to see, here's a guy that's managing yet again. So he's in charge of the prison now. And he is stuck there. And suddenly a baker and a butler show up and we find a pair of dreams. Now he's in charge of caring for them. And in the morning he notices that they were sad. They share, um, they both have had a dream And Joseph says to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Share the dream with me. First goes the butler, verses 9 through 15. His dream ends with a favorable translation uh, at the end, which, which Joseph asks that he remember him when he is out in three days. So he shares what's going on. And Joseph says, in three days, you're going to be pouring wine for Pharaoh Please don't forget me because I'm in here. I I was sold as a slave from the Hebrews, which wasn't right. And I'm put in prison, which wasn't right. I've done nothing wrong. 
right? Which is what every prisoner says. <laughs> you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't commit a crime. I don't know why I'm here, right? And so he's saying that, please remember me. The baker, verse 16, he's like, oh, that was a favorable uh, interpretation. He asked Joseph to interpret his dream. Not so favorable, right? He gets the not favorable interpretation. In three days, he is what? Hung. Joseph believes that he has the biblical interpretation or God's interpretation. He doesn't bother asking the baker to remember him because the baker's remembering nothing six, three days from now. And he's gone. What's the key component? Even though Joseph gave the accurate interpretation, he still is what? Prisoner and he's forgotten. Verse 23, yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. Again, cheated, right? Who gives someone basically life and then forgets? That's, that's, and he even says it later on. He says, I, I've been at fault. I put here as a question, how patient are you? Can you imagine getting that glimmer of hope? Oh, I'm getting out of this place. This guy's got to remember me. I mean, he's the butler to Pharaoh, and I just gave him interpretation of a dream from God that comes true. And then all goes dark again. And I put here, can you handle being forgotten? Time passes, a decent amount of time. I think it's like two years. And a situation arises in Pharaoh's house. He has a dream and no one can interpret it. By the way, he's not like Nebuchadnezzar. He tells people the dream. They don't know what it means. So they're trying to give the interpretation of this dream. They don't know it. The butler remembers Joseph. I put here, who needs enemies with friends like that? You know, oh, I remember this great guy. He was in prison with me and he interpreted my dream. And I told him I remember him, but it's been about two years. That's not bad, right? You know, I'm going to see if I can bring it up. And Joseph's life makes another drastic turn. And I put the opportunity comes up, right? Now, what's great is God had him in the king's prison where he's going to meet the butler who two years later is going to remind Pharaoh that this is coming up. And this is, a dream needs to be interpreted. By the way, he wasn't going to interpret any dreams in Potiphar's house, but he's interpreting dreams in prison. And now he comes in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I saw seven fat cows eaten by seven lean cows, seven good ears of corn consumed by seven thin ones. That's my summary of that dream, which is repeated multiple times in this chapter. It's told to Joseph, he then interprets it by repeating the dream, and no one can interpret the dream, and then Joseph is remembered by the butler, and he's caught out of prison. It says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. You always move quick when Pharaoh wants somebody. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in on the Pharaoh, and the himself is not necessarily in the Hebrew text at all. He shaved and he came into Pharaoh. So shaved himself or somebody shaved him. They cleaned him up. They put good clothes on him. We're not going to offend Pharaoh by having a dirty prisoner come up to him. Joseph explains that both dreams point to the same thing. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine that would consume the seven years of plenty. And I think we've all heard many sermons on this one. And then Joseph does something unique. He interprets the dream and then he gives Pharaoh what? Advice. Hey, Pharaoh, the dream says you're not going to remember how good the years are. Let Pharaoh, he says, basically do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. In other words, we're going to have so much that if we actually store it, we might get through this. And he doesn't say, let me, he says, let somebody. The idea was approved. And then Pharaoh asked the servants who would be better than Joseph for the job. Now, what servant's going to say, I think it'd be me. 
Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh do with people that frustrate him? Prison. This guy came from prison. Pharaoh wants to use him. I love it. I would like to help Joseph, right? You always agree with Pharaoh. He's not his advisors, it's his servants. Even if you're his advisor, you want to agree with Pharaoh. And so Joseph gets the job, and then we find a prisoner turned to a prince. And I put that in quotes. He's not really a prince, but in functionality is. At the age of 30, he's made the second in charge. He's given a wife and told, execute your plan. He's not executing Pharaoh's plan. He's executing his own plan. And Pharaoh just said, here, take care of it. I don't want to think about it. So enjoy the seven years. Make sure you take care of everything. And he gathers during the good and prepared to sell back during the bad years. Now, Joseph's plan is pretty terrible from a government standpoint, right? For a people standpoint, because Joseph ends up owning all the Egyptians. Pharaoh goes from a land that is independent to a land that is completely under the rule of Pharaoh because they sell their lives to Pharaoh and they just become indentured servants, except for the priests who are given crops by Pharaoh. The bad years come and the people come from Egypt for help. And then the people start coming from the surrounding areas. What's the key component I want you to get out of 41? From prison to the palace, God has again moved drastically in Joseph's life and he is now in a position to help and further God's plan of Israel sojourning in Egypt. Who did God say that Israel would sojourn in Egypt for 430 years? Who, who, who was that prediction made to? Abraham. All the way back to Abraham. And you see God working his plan through Joseph. Why do I want you to keep 45.5 in mind? Is that Joseph never looked to God and said, I'm just a stinking pawn in your game. How many people do that? Well, we're some kind of pawn in God's game. That's not how Joseph looked at his life. He looked at it with purpose and fulfillment. He says, I serve a sovereign, providential, ruling God, and I recognize my role in this. And he was grateful for his opportunity to serve. That doesn't condone the sin of his brothers, but it shows you a man, and I want you to see where his heart was. It worshiped God. Did Joseph have circumstances that would make anyone want to curse God? I would say, yeah, right? I mean, talk about ups and downs. I mean, we, and this is, I, I share this because we have that one um, pastor's wife, Reina Tinoco, um, and in the span of a month, she lost her husband, mom, and son. And you wonder to yourself, how does someone sit up in bed after that? How in the world does she wake up and get up in the morning? Because it's just this waves of grief. Right? Losing your husband's bad enough, and then losing your mom on top of that, and then to lose your son to cancer. There, they live next door to each other. The son was married, husband and wife there. A son who was a bit of a, I wouldn't say a rebel, but he had, he had gone, finally gone to the Institute, was serving the Lord, actually met with him a couple times, uh, and, and just a passionate guy involved in the missions in their church, and went from... Um, the apple of his dad's eye, but a bit of a disappointment to a kid that just jumped in, kid, he was about 38 or so when he passed away, and serving the Lord, and he's gone. And, and how does she wake up? And then I think about Joseph and just wave after wave. You go from chosen son to being sold as a slave to rising to prominence, being thrown into prison, to being forgotten, and finally you're back up here. How do you keep your mind around you? Well, it's because he always saw things from God's perspective. And that's a lot to ask from a young person. It's a lot to ask from anybody. But from 17 on, he had to have that perspective. And so what we see is God 
working his plan, fulfilling his promises, and we see Joseph working right with God. His, his purpose rested in what God's purpose was for him. And the stage is set, and the people are coming from outside of Egypt, and now we come to the big reconnect with the brothers, that prized lot of offspring of Jacob that anyone would hate to be related to. Um, they come for food. I'm going to work through this quick, 42 through 45. I'm doing a lot of chapters and a lot of back and forth. That's why I encourage you to go read it over. Let me see if I can do it justice. Um, they come for food. They're accused by Joseph of spying. He has a little bit of fun. I think God would be approving of it. Now, give him a little hard time. Man. Just, you got to mess with him just a little. He's testing his brothers. He wants to see if they have had any change. Have they grown at all, at all in their life? Are they the same wicked, horrible people that would dump their brother in a well? Or have they grown in some sense, way, or form? And so he accused them of spying. They say, we don't spy. And then he says, well, good. And then they, somehow they spill the beans about Jacob and Benjamin. Not that he didn't know it, but he forces or, or orchestrates that. And then he keeps Simeon and says, when you come back to Egypt, bring Benjamin. And I'll let Simeon go. But to make sure they would come back, they don't trust them, he keeps Simeon there. Then he returns the money to their bag. They get home, they open their bags, the money's still there. Benjamin needs to come. Jacob is not wanting Benjamin to leave. What's the last time he let a son go that he loved? What happened to him? Chewed up. Ain't gonna let these, these guys, who's gonna let your own precious son go with these ones, right? In the end, they're gonna starve, so they go, and I'm not hitting every detail, but there's a huge feast, and they're sat in order, and Benjamin is given five times the amount of his brothers. And what he's watching, he's looking at his brothers, they're not jealous, they're astounded that he has it in order. That he know how, how much would that blow your mind, right? You all, my mom's brothers, right? When you're a kid, you're growing up, and I know there's a, a span of age, but at some point, they all look to be the same age. <laughs> And then a bunch of them have scraggly beards and like, well, it looks like you guys are twins. You know, that's how you, you look at it. I couldn't tell them one age apart at, at 40. I had no idea. Could you imagine you're thinking this is a foreign ruler and he just sits you down in age order. Look, they weren't that far apart. Right? There was four wives and they were all having babies in that 14 year period. So it's not, it's, it's not that easy to divide them up. I mean, you line me and my brothers up. We're all balding except for Bobby. And, um, you know, he got the lucky genes. Thanks for passing the, those on. You know? <laughs> All the hair went to one brother, you know, and stayed with him, and the rest of us are we're out of luck. But you line us up, and trust you me, if you don't know what the age order is, even the youngest man, he's stumped over. He looks old. Look, I'm, I'm happy. I'm in the middle. I can't lose, right? I'm just right there. But the fact of the matter is, is at this age of our lives, if you didn't know my family, you'd have a hard time putting us in perfect age order. They're putting perfect age order. They're looking and thinking, what is going on? Well, what happens is he does a trick on them, doesn't he? So the, the money goes back in the bag, but Joseph go ahead and puts his cup in Benjamin's bag. They go back and chase him down. They open it up. The cup's found in Benjamin's bag. And Joseph says, good, we'll just arrest the one that stole my cup. The rest, you're free to go. This is a big test right now. Judah has promised his dad, basically, you can kill my sons um, if I don't bring Benjamin back. He's not coming back without Benjamin. And so instead of being the guy that sells Joseph, remember who was the one who had the idea? Hey, let's not kill him. Let's just make him a slave. Nice brother. He's now begging to be the slave 
in place of Benjamin. Now, he's this guy. He ain't a shining star. This hasn't happened that far away. He has had a confrontational moment pretty close to this, but now he's begging Joseph, take me instead. And then you get to 45, chapter 45, look at 1 through 8. It's kind of like the close to this saga a little bit. And I'm, I'm doing okay for me. Uh, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. By the way, Egyptians didn't eat with the foreigners. So taboo, which is one indication of timing. Um, because the next ruling dynasty 400 years later was an outside group that never had that much control of Egypt to begin with, and they were outsiders, so they didn't have the same rules. So one of the indications of timing is a little bit why they're so separate, because that dynasty during that time was, they were purebred Egyptians. They weren't messing with all this scrabble coming in. So when he sends everyone out and then he comes in to meet with them, in, in the Egyptians' mind, Joseph is Egyptian. He, he, he's, he's woven into their fabric, and these are... Ugh, you know, pagans, right? In their mind, they worshiped all these weird gods, but these people are outsiders. He sends them off and he's weeping and he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard, no, no secrets from Pharaoh. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Right? That makes sense. The only one that feels okay is Benjamin. Oh, really? I don't remember Joseph. They do. They sold him into slavery, right? And then says, uh, and Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, new paragraph, by the way, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither for God did send me before you to preserve life. Now that's the perspective of man. You sold me the perspective of God. I was sent here to preserve life. Whose perspective does Joseph have? It's definitely God's. It goes on from there. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. I want you to recognize something. He was 17 when he lands in Egypt. He spent more time in Egypt. He's been advanced in front of everyone in the world. Where has he seen the most blessing in his life? Egypt. Who is he loyal to? his people. He has never stopped being a son of Israel. Even though all the pro prosperity, his wife, everything's been given to him by Egypt, and he stands in that position and says, I was sent here to preserve a posterity for us so that our line would continue. He is seeing and hearing God's covenant and he sees how he functioned in God's covenant. It's a pretty amazing when you think about who he is. And so now it has, and so it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. I have become bigger than Pharaoh. Not really, but really, right? He's the executing branch of this leadership. Now, Pharaoh hears about it. He invites. Um, Joseph tries to convince his brothers to come to Egypt. Pharaoh hears about it and extends a bigger invitation, sending carts. Come on in. We're going to get you into the best land. Uh, Jacob can hardly believe the news when he's told it. And you go to 28. It says, And Israel said, It is enough. 
Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. What's the application? I want to return, um, though, to Joseph's take on life. Because if you want to take something away from Joseph, this is it. This is a guy who sees clearly God's providence and God's sovereignty in the unfolding of life without excusing or permitting the sinful acts of the brothers. That's 5 and 8, both those verses. You meant it to be horrible. He's going to say it again to his brothers. You meant it to, for wrong. God meant it for good. You sent me here. You sold me. God sent me. You didn't do this. God sent me here for a purpose. And he sees it to preserve life, to preserve God's covenant. Whose covenant? Whose promise? Does he see himself keeping? God's promise. And I think it's fascinating when you look at his life. What did Jacob do? And I'm not saying it's bad, but Jacob was always claiming God's promises. God, you promised me this. You promised me this. Remember you promised to bring me back? Remember you promised me that I would get there? Esau better not kill me. And I'm not saying he was wrong. It was a humble prayer. But you see a huge move in Joseph's life. Because what does he say? He says, I'm serving the God who made the covenant. And his joy in his life rested in being a part of God's promise coming true. That's how he saw his worth. And, and that's why Joseph is just this massive... Uh, why is he always a type of Christ? And, and I'm not a, a big typology guy, so you're, no, you're rarely going to hear me preaching types. Not that that's not there. It's just it's been overdone, and I think there's, there's a risk in that. But, but of all the people to grab and see, this guy lived a life and had a perspective that was astounding because he didn't even... And I'm not saying you shouldn't claim God's promise. I'm just saying this man saw his purpose in being part of of the fulfillment of God's word. I am thrilled because God's promise worked through me in this way. And life wasn't an easy street for him. It was tough from prisoner to world leader. He was crushed and conquered it multiple times. And all through that time, he stayed focused because he saw God's plan unfolding in his life. Jacob's favoritism of Joseph, never excusable, but there's no way he knows all this without being taught by Jacob. And my assumption is Jacob taught it to all his sons, and only one of them was listening. And you see the heart of Joseph. And I put here, are you able to see life from God's perspective? Where you are in your walk with Christ, are you able to look at life from God's perspective? Can you see through the murkiness of the sinful world and see God's perspective? And then this is the even bigger question. Are you willing to do so? Because I would say that the majority of the church around the world has zero desire to see God's perspective. They want God to work in their life. And I'm not saying it's bad. Again, I want you to I'm not Jacob, humble prayer, God working in his life. But boy, you see a drastic vision here with Joseph of a God that says, I want to be a part of God's plan. I want to, be, I want to see things God's way. And my full ultimate fulfillment is God's word. He didn't say to his brothers, man, isn't it great? I'm ruling this roost, man. We're going to have a good time here. No. I was sent here to carry on God's promise. Do we, are we able to see life from God's perspective? And then more importantly, are you willing to see life from God's perspective?